at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes, as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni. Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Lily Hart. And I'm Evan Smiley. Our current political scene, as we all know by now, is divided and filled with tension. Newspapers speculated that this was, the most, was one of the most divided times in America's history. This last year saw newspapers such as the Washington Post claim that America really is more divided than ever, but was it? America has a long history of political tension due to a number of factors, not limited to America's complicated and often shameful history. And throughout these divides, the recently elected president tries to heal the divides through wars of unity. My guest today, Amy Rathfelder, is a political scientist, major, and a historian. Um, this is her senior year at Portland State University, which has taken enough history credits to qualify for the Departmental History Honor Society. For her undergraduate thesis, entitled Myths of Adam's 13 Clocks, an analysis of divisive political rhetoric in the United States from the Philadelphia Convention to the 21st century, she did a research project where she analyzed political discourse and rhetorical at four distinct time periods in the history of the United States. The founding era, the rhetoric surrounding the buildup to the Civil War and the tensions that exploded during and immediately following the war, discourse originating in the heated racial tension to the height of the Civil Rights Movement, and then the, and then the most recent election. A key part of her research was the primary source material of inaugural addresses. During divided times, unified wards were our focus. Thank you for joining us, Amy. And let's just begin with some more information about you. Where are you from originally, and how did you come to be a political science major at PSU? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Um, so I'm actually originally, <laughs> originally from the Midwest. I grew up in Portland. Uh, I did my first two years of undergraduate at a small liberal arts school in Ohio, um, where I was actually a double major in history and poli-sci. So a lot of my current focus comes from that experience um, and came back home to finish up my undergraduate here at Portland State. Um, and uh, I, I love history. I've always loved history. Um, I think uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it more in depth a little bit later, but I think it's um, it's very applicable to the study of political science, um, both current and past. And uh, I think that I would argue that in today's current political climate doesn't get enough focus or focus or application. Um, so I uh, I have always been of the mindset that using history and the study of political science is a valuable and worthy use of my time and attention. Um, what prompted you to do a thesis project, uh, and what prompted you to pick this topic in particular? Uh, well, the, the heart of it is that I honestly just love to write, um, and I love academia, and I, I felt that I had some looking at my academic workload at the beginning of this year, or I guess about a year and a half ago when this all started, uh, I had some elective credits that I hadn't used up and so decided to do a credit by arrangement. Um, and so instead of taking uh, more elective classes, I opted to do a writing project and a research project. So that's that's the original uh, starting point. I have a great advisor who encouraged me the whole time. And, um, and then I, in choosing the topic, just felt like uh, watching 
the 2016 election unfold um, in the beginning stages and thinking about the last couple major election cycles that this country has gone through, I felt like the contribution I had, my interests are really, really relevant to um, the literature body that exists, as well as the literature that will um, come about these uh, about these national experiences in the next few years. So um, that those were the, the two driving factors. And then um, I'm a communication specialist in my field. So I'm really fascinated by the process that goes into political messaging and how we relate to each other um, on both elite and mass levels and how that impacts and reflects on the social fabrics and constructs that we experience in this country. So this particular topic is, um, it's a passion project for me and it it was definitely influenced by those interests. For our listeners, could you... um Give us just a quick summary of your thesis. Yeah, so it's basically a look at how rhetoric um, is reflective of the divides experienced in our nation at these four distinct periods. So you have the founding era, which I describe as, or which I define as the period of time between um, 1787 or the ratification debates and the election of Thomas Jefferson in 1800. Um, and then the, the Civil War, which is uh, mostly looking at the years 1860 to 1864 ish, um, the Civil Rights Movement, so the early part of the 1960s, and then um, the, the last, the previous three elections, so 2008, 2012, and 2016, looking at how um, our rhetoric on both elite and mass levels, so um, rhetoric coming from mostly presidents, but uh, elected officials, members of Congress, things like, or people like that, as well as um, mass level, which is uh, the general public. So op-eds, um, even public debates, uh, how that is reflective of uh, the intensity of the divide we were, we felt and are feeling now. Um, I was really interested in the claim after the 2016 election that we're the most divided that we've ever been. I just didn't think that was necessarily true. I didn't think it was false either, but I, I wanted to explore that more in depth. And so um, I felt like communication is is and was a great way to measure a concept like that. So talking a bit more about inaugural addresses, in your paper you quote uh, Carlene Campbell, who said, presidential inaugurals are delivered on ceremonial occasions, link past, present, and future, link past and future and present contemplation, and demonstrate a sensitivity to key issues facing the nation. You state that for these reasons, inaugurals are an obvious choice of uh, rhetoric to examine when evaluating the nature of polarization in these various time periods. Um, so can you talk a bit more in depth about inaugural dresses, divided times, and what you found in your research? Sure. Um- Examining inaugural addresses was probably one of my favorite parts of uh, this this year and a half long endeavor. Um, I feel like inaugurals are uh, they're fascinating for a number of reasons, but for for this context and this research project, um, I started with the concept that uh, inaugural addresses are actually um, it's it's a ceremony that's not constitutionally required. It's just always happened. So it started with George Washington, um, the very first address ever, um, and it's just always been upheld. Uh, and so for that reason, um, because there's not constitutional requirements, um, newly elected presidents are. Uh, there's a lot more freedom in in the rhetoric they use and the I mean 
they have speechwriters now, and it's a it's a very scripted process. But there's no there is no dictation um, in the Constitution, um, and so they are free to um, sort of uh, sort of put the experience of the, the, the issues facing the nation, put the experience of the country into words and deliver it to a unified body of people. It's one of the few times that our country is um, sort of all listening to the same thing. And so there's a lot of historians that will, that you can find books about inaugurals um, and historians and political scientists that quote uh, the importance of these addresses. Um, but what I've what I've found is that they're just a really great way and a really good reflection of um, sort of the the taking the pulse of the country. So they're a great way to sort of gauge what was going on and a, a great way to gauge the context because context is actually a huge part of my research. Um, it is when you're looking at any historical event. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think inaugurals are uh, are. I don't think you could do a, a research project like mine without considering them. Based on your like findings with ina- like okay, inaugural addresses, were there any sort of comparisons or anything that really stood out to you when looking at the past ones and then also analyzing like Trump's, which was must have been was obviously an addition to your research since that came later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just on a personal note, I think one of the, the craziest research experiences I've ever had was doing an in-depth rhetorical analysis of an inaugural address from a president like Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. um, whose both his first and second inaugural address addresses are considered just rhetorical masterpieces. So doing a, in, an in-depth analysis of that and then you know, an hour later doing the same process for um, Donald Trump's inaugural was uh, kind of mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, what I found um, just contextually um, and in relation to the rest of my research is that inaugurals follow a little bit of a different rhetorical trend than what you might find with um, with rhetorical trends in uh, in mass communications, and that um, they don't really reflect. Uh, on a surface level, the harshness of the divide that the nation has or is experiencing. So um, because it's a ceremonial occasion um, and the environment is very uh, contained and scripted, what I found in looking at inaugurals is that the presidents delivering them uh, are are delivering them as a reflection of, uh, of the intensity of the divide. So Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural, given in 1861, a month before the start of the Civil War, uh, the rhetoric in in that speech generally is very geared toward appealing uh, appealing to the desire of the citizen to come together. So it's very unifying, very positive, very upbeat, and um, trying to be uh, optimistic in the face of a lot of really, really harsh divisions and sectional conflict, obviously. And, um, and I mean, we all know what happened. That attempt was kind of in vain, but um, it's very reflective of, of the general trend of inaugural addresses is that they are, the harsher the divide, the more optimistic the language is generally what I've found. Um, Donald Trump's inaugural was, <laughs> was kind of an exception to that. Uh, what he ended up doing was undercutting a lot of the um, unifying rhetoric with a populist message, so a clear definition of us and them and bringing power back to the people, but at the same time speaking from 
um, an elite position, a position of enormous influence and power as the newly elected president. Uh, and yeah, so it was, it was an interesting comparison. Uh, the whole 2016 election was unprecedented, um, and Donald Trump's inaugural was no exception to that rule. What challenges yeah. did you face in this research? Do you, I'm, I'm assuming you have to be very aware of your own bias when analyzing these, not only the addresses, but just um, because it is politically charged by the nature of what you're studying. Um, how difficult is that to keep your own opinions from it? Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, it's something that I work at every day. Um, being a political science uh, major and a scholar means that, uh, and I mean, doing it for a number of years means that I've I've gotten pretty good at um, considering the whole perspective. So when I'm in an academic mindset, I'm in an academic mindset and I'm forcing myself to analyze things objectively um, instead of subjectively. So it's really just a mental process that you engage in every time you're looking at um, not only rhetoric, but newspaper articles, public debate records, um, even things that happened over 200 years ago. The ratification debates in, in 1787, people still have opinions about those. So um, you have to be mindful of it at all times, uh, basically. But I think in terms of challenges, um, the biggest one wasn't actually related to bias. It was related to scope. Um, looking at looking at this phenomenon of polarization and divide mirrored in rhetoric over essentially the, the entire scope of American history and doing it in an undergraduate thesis was hard. <laughs> um, there are a lot of things. I could write books on this. And what I've essentially come to realize is that I've, I've written a thesis that's the basis for a much longer work, which I'm excited to um, continue, hopefully, as I go into graduate school next year. Um, yeah, I think, I think just approaching the challenge of, um, of looking at, at that broad of a topic was um, interesting, and I had to do a lot of reworking and, um, and designing a methodology that would be able to fit some things and other things was... Uh, those were all part of the solution. But in terms of challenges, I, I think that was the biggest one. So you're a political science major, but you also have taken enough history credits to qualify for like Phi Alpha Theta, which is the Honor Society for History Majors here at PSU. Um, so can you talk about being both a political scientist and a historian, how you utilize both of those in your work? Absolutely. Um, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I think, um, I think that one of the most valuable ways we can approach politics today is to consider the importance of history. Um, yes. It's cliche, but yeah. history repeats itself as a valid, <laughs> a valid saying. And, uh, and people who don't consider the lessons that history has taught us are um, in some ways doomed to, doomed to learn the same hard lessons over again. So I think that applying the study of history and the lessons learned from history uh, to the way we think about our current political climate is key. Um, one of the things that I've tried to do in this research is uh, provide a little bit of resourceful guidance, I guess, so to speak. Uh, so looking at the ways in which we emerged out of these divided time periods in our past, how did we come out of the civil rights movement? How did we come out of the civil war? How did we rebuild um, and come together? Because a lot of the phenomenon of polarization is like a roller coaster. It has up periods and down periods. Um, and there are a lot of ways to measure that that phenomenon. So looking at how we emerge out of these time these time periods and using that as sort of um, 
using the compilation of, of all of those time periods to, uh, to apply those lessons to today. So what can we do in terms of our own individual behavior and rhetoric and communication style as well as, as, as a larger country and as a larger society to begin to bridge some of those gaps? Um, and I think considering the historical, uh, historical things that have happened in, in our history and the historical lessons is key, obviously, in informing that, that guidance. That makes sense. Yeah. It's, so you did um, already kind of mention that you want to expand with this topic um, in graduate school. So what are some ideas and thoughts that you have about making this into even a larger project? Absolutely. Um, well, uh, I would love to write a book on mm-hmm. this stuff someday. And I think I've got a great foundation for um, for a pretty big academic contribution, um, hopefully. Uh, I think one of the ways in which I had to modify my research process a little bit was I used a self-designed methodology that involved a lot of thematic coding, um, but it was only applicable to elite rhetoric. So a lot of the mass rhetoric that I provide is for contextual evidence and um, just supporting a lot of the claims I make about uh, certain trends in each time period. And I wasn't able to um, go in-depth enough to design a separate methodology to measure the mass rhetoric, so to speak. So I think that that would be one area that I would tackle immediately in a larger work was having enough bandwidth and time and space and uh, uh, just, I mean, a, a larger project would allow me to to incorporate that type of methodology and examine things on the level that they deserve to be measured. So I think that would be the the starting point. But I would love to um, I would love to do, I would love to write a book on this. Honestly, there's so much material and so many things that we can learn from a project like this. Kind of a side question, but this is, these are terms I think a bit more unfamiliar to history majors, at least to me, but what is uh, thematic coding and like methodologies used for measuring things like that? Yeah, for sure. Sorry, I should have elaborated <laughs> oh, more. Um, it's just in, in layman's terms, I guess, because uh, in my research, you can get really into the technical stuff. Um, but thematic coding is basically classifying um, language or communications or rhetoric, whatever you're looking at, by theme. So it's the way in which I measured inaugural addresses specifically. I grouped them into uh, – I. I self-designed a methodology, so I, I basically had positive and negative and um, positive – Codings were plus one, and they were reflective of a word or a sentence or a phrase that was um, uplifting, unifying, meant to be um, sort of uh, sort of meant to evoke a sense of like let's come together, let's uh, let's overcome, let's bridge this gap. Um, and negative was rhetoric or underpinnings in the rhetoric that uh, that denoted a sense of separation. So thematic coding is just looking at that communication or that data and grouping it by theme. Um, and there are a lot of existing thematic codings and thematic methodologies that, that people base their own research on. I came up with my own because I thought it was more applicable. But yeah, that, that's the basic definition. What was the, you kind of talked a bit about this already, but like the process of doing undergraduate thesis, like what are the different stages of research you go through and then writing and it takes about a year or more I know from experience as well but yeah yeah I think uh I think that anybody interested 
I think it's unique to each individual um, and unique to the individual and their advisor. Um, but for me, it's been about an 18-month process um, of some pretty crazy influencers. Um, for, for me, my process was literally at the beginning of, of last year sitting down with my advisor. And um, I think the first conversation we had was uh, after we'd established that this is this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to do a credit by arrangement and write a thesis um, and hopefully publish it. Um, and he's like, all right, so what, what were you thinking? And, you know, just give me whatever you got. Let's do a brainstorming session. And, and I sat down and I was like, well, I've been listening to a lot of Hamilton lately. Um, <laughs> and I mean, it sounds silly, but you know, that's where it started. I, I was listening to Ham- I love the musical Hamilton and I was listening to it and thinking about how different just the, the phenomenon that there were these, these founding fathers that disagreed on such fundamental issues like slavery and women's rights, stuff like that. But we're still able to come together and produce the Constitution of the United States and produce the Declaration of Independence. Um, my title, The Myth of Adam's 13 Clocks, is based on a quote from John Adams that he um, he wrote in a letter uh, to Henry Niles, another uh, influential founder, um, about uh, 13 clocks striking together. So 13 clocks coming together to produce, 13 colonies coming together to produce the Declaration of Independence and basically arguing that that is a myth. Although they did come together, there were so many disagreements. We've never all agreed about anything. And so um, thinking about those concepts, figuring out what you're interested in, and then like fleshing that out, coming up with a a larger topic, um, and then just diving into it. I think that uh, the research process, like I said, is unique. And um, if you're considering doing a project, the number one piece of advice I would give is to uh, is to uh, look at something that you are one million percent passionate about on a lot of different levels um, finding your your niche and finding something that might even sound like mine was super silly at the beginning but it it sort of developed into something that was uh, relevant and worthy of research and time and effort and I think that finding that at the beginning and then just running with it is the best way to go so good advice yeah yeah yeah, a year-long project like that you have to be passionate absolutely those late nights you have to be doing something that you're you're at least interested in and looking at (laughs) so you're going to graduate school but can you talk a bit more about your plans after undergrad absolutely um so i am headed to the district of columbia in august um i'm gonna um, pursue my master's in political communications at American University in DC, and that's a two-year program. So I'll be there, hopefully, uh, able to use this basis for a larger research in some way, um, maybe for a master's thesis. Who knows? Uh, and then after that, my my ultimate aspirations are actually in law, in constitutional law. I love writing, and I I would love to do legal counsel for um, a human or civil rights group as a a career basis. So that's, that's the immediate plan, but we'll see. I'm, I'm always up for adventure. So (laughs) is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? Do a thesis. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, no, I, I, 
I think that, thank you guys. You guys have asked wonderful questions, um, and I'm so excited to be here. I think uh, the only other thing, I mean, it's kind of fitting that we're doing this interview on a special election day, but my my only other thoughts would be to, to think about these concepts and to think about the ways in which you talk to people um, are not only reflective of you as a political or politically engaged individual, but are reflective as a larger of a larger society and how maybe you can modify some of those communication trends to be less divisive. Because I think that um, one of the hardest things we do as citizens and as engaged citizens is look at our own individual engagement patterns. And um, I think, honestly, that's one of the one of the steps to overcoming the current political divisions is um, taking a good look at ourselves as individuals and as a society and, and thinking about how we can change some of those communication patterns. So think about those things. They're really relevant, really important. And yeah, <laughs> I guess that's it. So I have one last question. Sure. After having done all of this research, what's your opinion on are we more divided than ever? Yeah. Okay. So uh, my conclusion, basically, objectively, is that we're not necessarily more divided than ever. We are divided differently. So arguably the biggest influencer ever on the way we communicate on all levels has been the rise of digital media, particularly social media. We're divided differently because it's easy for us to be divided now. Everyone's got their smartphone. Everyone's got Facebook on their smartphone. It's it takes sub 10 seconds to open Facebook and look at a comment feed and just see some of the inflammatory, provoking, vitriolic language that's on those comment feeds. Um, and it's it takes sub 60 seconds to add to that comment feed. And that didn't exist in 1787. It's not that we think about each other differently, per se. It's not that we d- disagree any less or are any less vocal about it. But here now in 2017 in the 21st century it is a thousand times easier to do that than in the 18th century uh so i I don't think the severity of the divides has lessened um the one exception is arguably the civil war we haven't yet come to physical violence again and hopefully uh it's very relevant to what I was talking about earlier and learning the lessons of our past um hopefully we never experience that type of conflict again but um But yeah, uh, the general conclusion is that um, we are divided differently, not necessarily more or less. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you guys. Yeah, and Amy's uh, thesis, it should be on PDX Scholar sometime later, and you can check it out there. So Awesome, thank you. Thank you. Beyond Footnotes is recorded in the studios of KPSU and is an association with the PSU Department of History. If you want to check out more content, you can go to kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes or check out our Facebook page. We're also on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.